0: Welcome to another episode of The Right Notes. Today, our guest is Lee Scalarup Bassett, who is a learning design specialist at Georgetown. Our conversation with Lee is wide-ranging, talking about her academic work, her writing, and her instructional design. This is episode 13, Feeling Less Alone. This is The Right Notes with Guy McKendry and John Carter.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Right Notes. I'm John Carter here with Guy McHendry. And today our guest is Lee Scalarup Bassett, a learning design specialist at Georgetown University. Welcome, Lee.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Thanks for joining us. We're very excited to have you. Um, lots of fun things with your work and your website to talk about, as well as yeah. your music. Uh, so, we usually like to start by just kind of letting you tell us uh, tell our guests a little bit about yourself so kind of what you work on the stuff you do what kind of that kind of stuff
2: yeah so um, I'm a learning design specialist which is kind of a fancy name for instructional designer Uh, so as you can imagine uh, in this particular moment uh, my my skills are in high demand Um, (laughs) and very busy summer uh, up ahead coming up ahead But uh, I also work, so I work at the intersection of technology and pedagogy, uh, online and hybrid learning. Uh, My training is originally in comparative literature, Um, so I'm also, uh, you know, a literature and narrative person at heart, Um, and uh, that's sort of what I keep doing on the side is writing, and I still do a little bit of research, Um, but... Yeah, so uh, I do a lot of I do a lot of stuff. It, it, one of the things that I like best about my job is that I get to engage with faculty across disciplines and hear about all of the fantastic things that they teach and research in and help them create meaningful learning experiences uh, for their students. So that's always a lot of fun, and um, I you know I'm known as a, a bit of a fast writer. so it's always been some of my superpowers to be able to write fairly well, not necessarily excellently, but fairly well, uh, very quickly. Um, And so I I was uh, a content generator before content generation was a thing. Uh, And so, you know, I just uh, people ask me, like, why do you write so much? And I say, well, that's my hobby um, Mm -hmm. as well as part of my job. Um, and when I'm not, when there isn't a pandemic, uh, I also, um, coach swimming, uh, which is another passion of mine. So.
1: Nice. So I have to ask, what's the weirdest thing you can think of a faculty member has wanted you to try to accomplish in learning design? Um, there's,
2: there's not really anything weird um, it's that faculty in a lot of cases, and I think people generally, um, think that the technology is magic. Okay. And so it can do whatever they want it to do, um, however they want it to do it in exactly the way that they envision it in their mind. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a lot of, it's not necessarily weird rec- Requests. The requests are, are, you know, on the face of it, reasonable. It just is not possible within the realm of of the technology that we have, um, you know, for it to work exactly the way. Um, Uh, they want it to work and, and uh, interface the way they want it to interface. You know, like we've, some of the, some of the, the questions are less about like, I want to do this in my course, but why is this button here and not there? And why can't Mm. I do this? And why can't you move this to do this? And why can't I put, you know, an image here? Or why is, you know, why is the record button over here and not over there? Like, you know, so, so things, things like that, where, you know, they, they'd really, they, They see particularly things on the web that are um, more intuitive, that are more um, user-friendly, and they wonder why some of our ed tech tools are not like that and why we can't develop them. And my, you know, my answer is, is because like, well, we don't have the capacity to do that. We don't have the, yeah. the you know, the, the programmers and the coders and the, the venture capital <laughs> to be able to, you know, make make everything work the way the best, say, website or interface tool works. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, you know, and there's also debates around, you know, do we want, how easy do we want to make it? Because learning is supposed to be, in some cases, challenging. Now, we don't want the technology to be challenging, but we also don't want the entire experience to be completely frictionless, you know? Yeah. Um, so a little friction can sometimes be a good thing. So it's, it's balancing all of those things in terms of what the faculty expect the technology should be able to do, what they want the technology to be able to do, um, versus, uh, you know, the affordances of the technology, but also just, you know, what, what is um, a good learning experience on the side of the student.
1: Excellent. So uh, Guy's going to talk to you a little more about the music you do your work to, but just Mm -hmm. to kind of get a a sense of your musical tastes more generally, what are kind of, what are your general tastes in music kind of across the board?
2: Uh, I'm sort of a a pop uh, rock alternative. I'm a, you know, sort of true late Gen X where I came up in the late 80s and, you know, my first, my first love was New Kids on the Block and then... Mm -hmm. You know, gave gave that up for for the grungier fare, um, and never really stopped. So you know, I, I still love a good pop song. Um, you know, that'll get my that'll get the the beats per minute. Um, and then, uh, and I still listen, like to listen to rock alternative, which is it's it's weird for me because I'm listening to these rock alternative stations that are basically now like classic rock stations mm-hmm. that that i've listened to when i was a kid where i was like oh the 70s and oh, you know 60s and 70s and now it's like oh the 90s <laughs> like oh okay i guess that's that's a thing now um
1: so for as a fellow uh alternative slash pop lover what are some of your favorite example artists of those genres um so
2: Currently, when it comes to to pop music, like I really got into Lizzo uh, when she came out with her album last year. Uh, I'm a sucker for uh, you know Adele. Um, you know, <laughs> if I need a good if I need a, to get a good moment to get into my feelings, you know, I'll put on some Adele. Uh, I was actually blasting Lizzo yesterday, driving uh, with the windows rolled down because the weather was really nice. Um, And then in terms of the alternative, I'll just sort of, you know, I'm still a huge Weezer nerd. Like I, you know, I will, I will always, um, you know, buy the latest Weezer album for better or for worse. Um, uh, I've got the new Killers one, new Killers album that I'm kind of going on. But I also enjoy something like the 1975. I missed, let's say that I missed um, the National uh, on the first go round. Uh, because I I like to call it my dark period of doing my PhD. So like the, the, you know, right around uh, the turn of the century. (laughs) um, You know, I uh, I didn't, wasn't big on the new music just because I was in sort of PhD mode. And all of these bands that everybody is talking about who've come out with new albums and that, and they're like, and I'm like, why have I never heard of this band? This is like perfect music for me. And then I look at when they like release their first and second album. And I'm like, oh, it's the PhD Void. Okay. All right. That's why I never heard of you <laughs> or until now. Um, you know, I like Halsey, uh, Kesha's new album. I, you know, I, I really enjoy. Is like a summer. I'm looking forward. I haven't listened to it yet. So I haven't had a chance, but I'll give Lady Gaga's an album uh, a listen. I've been really digging um, a lot of, uh, women, um, alternative acts, um, too. So stuff like pronoun, um, I'm going to go to one of my playlists so I can sort of get this LPX, which is, you know, again, nice Mm -hmm. and, nice and poppy there, but she's fantastic. Uh, Claro is really good. Um, I really like Jay Psalms. I basically have a whole, Oh, Kay Flay. She's another one. I really like right now. My daughter got me into Billie Eilish. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, just, uh, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag and, you know, I get, I'm at a point in my life where I don't know what like is popular anymore (laughs) versus what's a niche taste. So, you know, um, uh, I think my daughter thinks my tastes are a little dated or a little strange. She's 13. So, you know, but I, yeah. (laughs) I think, I think even though like even just me liking Billie Eilish is like the you know kind of a limit on her, right? She's like, I guess we can like her together. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs> All right, excellent. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break here, and then when we return, uh, guys, gonna talk a li- with you a little bit more about uh, music and your writing and working process. Y'all are right. listening to the Right Notes. <laughs>
0: Back, everyone. This is the Right Notes. I'm Guy McKendry with John Carter, and our guest today is Lee Skellerup-Bissett. And uh, Lee, let's jump into now your taste in music when you're working, and uh, kind of looking over your website and your projects, and even just in the last segment. It sounds like uh, you do a lot, a yeah. lot. <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know so you have your work as an instructional designer uh you write um you obviously are doing some podcasting work as well on the side and all of these projects it seems like exist at some intersection of you personally and then your job and sometimes i'm sure those lines are clearer than others but can we just start with um so your work as an instructional designer what kind of music are you listening to when um, kind of you're in that headspace?
2: So I guess it depends on what kind of work I'm being asked to do as an instructional designer at that point. Um, if it's the tedious stuff, uh, I need something a little bit peppier uh, to keep me going. Um, so I'll go with, uh, say, the more dancey stuff like the Kesha or the Lady Gaga or even dip into my, like, 90s, you know, the 90s compilation dance hits that I had on CD originally back in the day. And now actually one of them is literally called back in the day. (laughs) So sort of pull that out, um, just to keep myself engaged and, and, um, and happy, I guess it just puts me in that, that kind of uh, happy mindset where I can be productive. Um, other times when I'm writing more generally, uh, You know a lot of people can't write to music with lyrics i need to write or work to music with lyrics actually um but it can't be music with lyrics that i have never heard before because what my brain will do is it will automatically tune in and try to learn all the lyrics to the song um so i have to have it it's i think it's part of my adhd that's my podcast that i do Uh, i co-host all the things adhd and um, it, it, everybody always marveled. Growing up, I was I was diagnosed late uh, later in life um, in my 40s. And when I was growing up, everybody always marveled because, of course, 90s kid plugged into your you know plugged into your Walkman, and I would sit there and I would be singing along or at least mouthing along the lyrics of the song and reading at the same time. <laughs> and everybody's like, "How are you doing that?" And I said, "I I can't not do it, right? Like if I'm just reading, I can't actually concentrate on." the book. I need the music um, that's familiar. And so like in coffee shops, I can't really work because my ears will pick up on people's conversations and try to listen in on their conversations. Um, so <laughs> so I need, I need, it's almost like white noise, but it's white noise that keeps a part of my brain engaged so that another part of my brain can focus on the work that I'm trying to do.
0: I uh, am having this, like, moment of intense identification because uh, uh, music with lyrics kind of functioned the same way for me. Um, I was diagnosed late in life with ADHD in my 30s. And, um, yeah, I feel this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Can you give us a a sense of that music? So what are you listening to? Some artists, uh, maybe a little bit more about genres that work really well?
2: Yeah. So I have, I, I actually just wrote about this on my blog. Um, so I, when I was, uh, younger, um, I started making mixtapes as you do, or as you did when you grew if, if, and when you grew up in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. you made mixtapes. Um, and so I had this very specific, it's not really a genre. It's like a, it's like a type, um, where it was just sort of like, um, I don't even want to call it easy listening because that's not quite right either, but it was mellow. It was mellower music. Um, in that uh, in in that sense. And so it, it was um some ballads, some sad songs, some's just like mellow tunes, anyways. And I, I made playlists of that sort of every year and kept making those. Um, and so now I think I'm up to number 27, which sounds about right, because it would have been like 1993 that I would have started making these. And I just called them stuff and kept numbering them. Like I had about like probably four or five and then it just stuck. Um, so it's, like I said, it's a mixture in this one. What's nice about it is you can really mix up genres where you can have like, um, pop music, and grunge, and R&B, and rock, um, because everybody has sort of a slower, softer, sadder um, song, usually in the repertoire, and they all kind of work well together as, as a playlist, so it's, it's a little bit mellower. Um, you know, oftentimes I have to be careful which ones I listen to because sometimes they'll just suck me into a nostalgia vortex rather than being productive. Um, but, it, 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 but they're also so familiar and comforting in a lot of times that it's like, if I need to get myself in a certain headspace, I know which playlist I can listen to because it'll sort of get me in the headspace of, of that year or that time in my life or, you know, something like that to be able to, to then kind of focus on what I need to be working on or what I need to be writing or, or even reading.
0: So can you just give us an example of um, like a specific playlist and what kind of headspace that gets you at? Like, what does that do for you to help you be productive and, and engage in that writing process?
2: All right. Let me find one. So I'm also (laughs) from Canada originally. Um, so like my early playlists when I was still up in Canada are very sort of Canadian heavy
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) where I could name, I could name off like three quarters of the songs of the bands and you'd be like, uh, okay. Um, I don't know who any of those people are, any of those songs. Uh, but so let me, let me find one like a little bit more recently. I'm scrolling on my phone right now, which is riveting podcast material. I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) all right so oh here's a good one so um so this one is 25 so probably about two or three years ago so it it opens with um no children by the mountain goats and then the acoustic unplugged version of don't take the money by the bleachers uh moves into some uh decemberists once in my life some uh uh, some snow patrol there we go got to get some snow patrol in there That that's a that's a good one i went through my brit pop phase right that that was the kind Mm of you know late 90s early 2000s brit pop phase uh some frightened rabbits um vance joy oh his most recent album i really enjoyed it's so Um, good oh it is so good uh interpol um some oh this is canadians the the weaker than's owl john yeah so this is sort of this is actually i i found this um that i made like a male list and a female playlist interesting so it was like yeah well no because what i had noticed is that like one year it was almost all like most of the stuff that i was discovering or the bands that i like were coming up were all like male fronted or um you know men singing and then the next year it was like all women. And so like this one I've got Billie Eilish and Freya Ridings. You know, you want to get up in your feelings. A redheaded piano is always great. So straight line from Sarah McLaughlin to Freya Ridings. Um, Maggie Rogers, uh, that album was also stunning. Um I've got Shade and Bishop Briggs and Charlie Bliss. That's another one. Oh, Charlie Bliss is young enough. That's one that it was, that it, that one, it's a recent album, but for whatever reason, it takes me back to like when I'm 16. Um, so I've just, like, it, it's, and then I've got like some Lizzo stuff in there and uh, Janelle Monáe. Um, so it, it's, so how, how would how would some of these make me feel? Like, so there's, there's certain ones where it's a sense of melancholy. Right. But um, I don't know, productive melancholy, if that makes sense. Maybe it's just like a cliched writer thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also um, so I'm also working currently on two memoirs. And so sometimes I'll dig into the playlists that I um, you know, that I listened to growing up, that I listened to at the age or, or the moment that I'm trying to recreate to kind of get back into that headspace or that time. Um and you know help with that memory work so it's it's um it's about i guess what kind of pro- like i said what kind of productivity do i need to be doing like is it is it like this deep hard thinking and I'll go a little bit more into melancholy is it mo- more lighthearted is it more like oh, I just really want to listen to um, you know, this, this random playlist that I made, uh, that's a mixture. Cause I have this also these weird ones, um, that I made as mixtapes because we were all getting CDs, right. The Columbia house CDs. Mm -hmm. Um, and everybody was reissuing, like, so all the bands from the sixties and seventies were reissuing all their work on CDs. So suddenly you had access to them. Um, so like I've got, uh, there's one that's like a, a, jarring change from like I've got like the mamas and the papas and the Beatles and and then I have Limp Biscuit. and I'm like all right well I guess that's where I was at at that point um. <laughs>
0: I I really like this connection you've made between like when you're working on a memoir going back to the music from that time period and you know I this isn't a hard connection to make right so in um like period pieces it's weird to say it that way but like in tv and films set like a couple decades earlier they draw from that music um and to help set like the mood and scene um yeah. i'm thinking a lot about right now the music of dairy girls if you have seen that and if you haven't it's amazing. It, i know it's
2: on my list it is totally okay. on my list <laughs> it, it takes
0: a, f- a few episodes to get into the accents and and to be able to to really get it Um, but the music there is so tailored to kind of this sense of nostalgia of when it's set and Mm -hmm. it seems like that would be so productive for memoir writing because it moves you back to that memory and emotional space.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. So like Everlong by the uh, Foo Fighters will never not bring me back to, um, a very specific moment during my undergraduate degree, right? Mm. So if I ever need anything from um, to call on any memories from that period for whatever <laughs> reason, like I just got to put on "Everlong" uh, by the Foo Fighters, or whenever "Everlong" will come on rock alternative radio, since that is like the almost standard bearer. Um, <laughs> is is yeah? Everlong comes out, and I can. I'm like I'm you know 19 again
0: so here and and you mentioned this when talking about like the the minutiae of instructional design, but we're kind of using writing so far today as this like catch all so what do you listen to when yeah. you're writing but Of course, there are kind of different tasks that all count as writing reading, yes. researching, um you know outlining, organizing actually at the keyboard writing stuff out and then like mm-hmm. editing and revising do you see places where um y- you lean on different artists or kinds of music for different writing tasks
2: yeah kind of like what the instructional design stuff is it's the more tedious the task like I like writing um I hate editing Um, And revising. And so I kind of have to psych myself up for those tasks. So (laughs) psych up music. So more, more, again, more on the dance pop sort of thing where, um, you know, again, I can, I'll go with even old school Madonna um, uh, dance hits. So like her late 90s, early 2000s stuff going, going back into the, the early 90s. Um, so like I'll pull out Madonna for that. And then maybe some Lady Gaga i um, yeah. And I'll pull out some, maybe some Beyonce as well for those kinds of things. Lizzo more, more recently. So anything that sort of has, you know, higher beats, um, a little bit dancier, a little bit poppier. Um, and then, you know, for, for writing itself, it depends on what the writing is for the research. It, it, again, it depends on how in depth. I, how deeply and how um, how deeply I need to read, and how unfamiliar the materials that they are. Um, you know, if it's if it's deeply unma- uh, unfamiliar stuff, then I have to go with th- the most familiar, so that like my brain doesn't even have to think about the lyrics or think about the music that's playing. Um, I, you know, my degrees in comparative literature, I. Um, grew up in Montreal, so I grew up fluently bilingual. And I went to a French university for my undergraduate, and my master's degree, and so if I'm reading in French, um, I'll pull out my French, my particularly my Quebecois playlists, um, because it helps sort of shift my mind back into the language, um, and I get the rhythm and the cadence a, a lot better as well. Um, and it took me a long time to figure that out. It was really funny. I was like, why didn't it occur to me earlier that I should just <laughs> listen to French music? while i'm reading french um so so yeah and then and then again it it depends on my uh on what i'm writing uh to be able to just sort of figure out okay well what's what's the best cuz it it really is it really is like that intersection between what am i writing today how am i feeling today uh, what else is going on in the world today <laughs> um to to sort of like say okay well maybe i need some rage against machine today Against the machine today, right? Maybe I need to pull out lemonade uh, by Beyonce and uh, you know let let those feelings um, sit in there, right? Am I in like a happy pop like Lizzo kind of mood, or am I in like a, I need to get psyched up an angry kind of mood? Um, you know what's 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 the what's the mood that I'm bringing in as well as what's the mood I'm trying to trying to strike in the writing itself? Um, so, so, yeah. yeah. But-
0: the word mood has come up so much in the podcast and um, I think some of that is, like, even though, uh, especially on some of the, like, natural science and even some of the social science disciplines talk about work around these, like, uh, huge emphasis on objectivity writing is so much about mood and feeling and emotion and music as a a work, a performance, a a a communicative mode, right? It it like deals in emotion. And so the connection between the two uh, makes so much sense. But sometimes I think we, we forget to make that connection
2: yeah well there's also i think there's the twin intimacy that comes with this right like especially now with music like we're listening to it and it's been this way for for a a while um but there there's an intimacy of listening to the music um you know in your ear in your ear pods or headphones in this like very personal and intimate headspace, um coupled with the intimate space of like you and this piece of paper um, and an audience right that you're writing for um, so that there's that again there's that sort of twin intimacy um, that comes through uh, and and that ability right because I mean music is I you know I wish I could write music I wish I could write songs um, that make people feel things the way you know um, the, the the music that I love makes me feel and I see it how it makes others feel too um, but there but you know, that, that's something that I strive for in my writing is, is thinking about, well, I think we all do, obviously, is thinking about audience, thinking about purpose, thinking about what it, what is it that we want to communicate? What mood do we want to strike? Um, you know, even if that mood is in academic terms, something more neutral, um, but, but we're still trying to communicate something. And so there's something really powerful in, that music that we listen to is so effective in doing that, that is, that twins that intimacy and, and for me is kind of um, a motivator and an inspiration to kind of take from and try to channel it into my own work, into my own writing.
0: Well, I, I think that this is a good point to take a, a brief break um, as kind of the next step is to talk about your writing process. I'm really curious about that. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, John and Lee are going to talk about the writing process. Y'all are listening to The Right Notes.
1: Welcome back to The Write Notes. I'm John Carter here with Guy McHendry and Lee scarborough Um And so we've gotten a, a good sense, of Lee, how you kind of match music with mood and language and a lot of these things to set up writing. But what I've also found impressive is just how prolific you are as a writer. So I'm really interested to kind of hear what it is that is kind of the process you use to go from kind of ideas to words on the page. So how do you kind of start with all this?
2: Um, so I actually think a lot before I start writing. Um, so, you know, it, it's the ADHD brain to a certain extent, um, where I'll be doing something and I I'm clearly thinking about something else. And usually it's my writing and what I want to write, or I'll, I'll sort of have an idea that I, I, sort, of, I sort of work through it probably about two thirds or three quarters of the way through, um, and then I just word vomit. You know how, I'm, I'm the worst person in the world to give writing advice because I do everything wrong. You know, they say have a daily writing practice and make sure that you write for a certain amount every sing- single day and, you know, be diligent. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I just word vomit. Right. Well, and so I will go through these intense bursts of, of writing. Um, and then, uh, my problem is, is that I, I have zero ability to tell if my writing is any good or not. And so I just like, when it comes to my blogs and other things like that, I just hit publish, which helps with the prolificness. I'm just like, whatever, publish it's done. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I feel that inspiration. Um, problem is I sometimes hit submit with that attitude and then editors get mad at me. Um, yeah,
2: oh, me too. Oh, me too. Um, uh,
1: but what I found, I mean, you kind of talked about doing everything wrong, but that's been one of the things I've liked about this podcast is pretty much everyone we talk to feels that way. Yeah. Um, and right, And that's part of what I think is one of the exciting things about like I like about you know this podcast is hearing everyone's different wrong way of writing that still somehow seems to be working for them I think helps like get away from kind of fetishizing the perfect writing practice that some of these books and other things have told us there are that I must Pomodoro for an hour and a half every day or whatever it is like if that works for you great I'm not knocking it I'm just saying not everyone ends up working that way Exactly. as another kind of word vomiter, um, you said you spend a lot of time thinking and then just kind of go. Do you have any systems that kind of mediate from the rumination to the word vomit? Or do you just like think and then type?
2: Uh, think and then type. I mean, again, it depends on what I'm writing as well. Uh-huh. So sometimes it'll be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll do a little bit of research you know, again, depends on what I'm writing, I'll do a little bit of research. Right. So usually I'll, I'll have, so there's different. So it's like, okay, so the more uh, let's think of a blog post. Right. Um, and I'm going to take away the COVID-19 ones because that's all just like stream of conscious stuff. Um, but let's say I'm engaging with something around teaching and learning or something that's Mm -hmm. come up in higher, larger, higher education circles. And, so I'll either see a tweet, or I'll read a piece, or I'll read a couple pieces because you know they all come out in clumps, right? Like as soon as somebody talks about it, everybody's now got to talk about it. Um, and so I will, I'll usually. T- I guess okay. So I guess Twitter would I get would be my mediator in that case, where I'll do some thinking out loud on Twitter, um, and I'll 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 react, and people will engage, and I'll have conversations. And then I'll sort of take a step back from that and sort of process whatever it is that people that have been brought into my view because of the conversation. And I'll think and I'll noodle on that. And then, like I said, when I have about two thirds of an idea of where I want to go with it, I'll just sort of go, start writing and see where it takes me. And then depending on where I want to do it, if I just want to publish it on my own blog or if I want to pitch it somewhere, then I might come back around and do a little bit more research just to kind of bulk up my references, right? That Mm -hmm. academic side never goes away. So it's sort of like, okay, I know, um, you know, I have some information. Now I know what I want to say about that information. And so now that I've said it, I'm going to go back and make sure that um, I didn't say anything stupid, or if somebody else said it, I got to make sure I refer back to it. Or is there anything that I really need to to take into consideration? Or if I'm just make a statement that I know I'm not sure is a correct one, I'll go back and be like, okay, is this really true? Like I've got an inkling that this is true. Oh, okay, no, I got that fact wrong. Okay, well, let me change that fact then, and 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 fill that out. So, so again, it depends on on purpose and audience, but. Often it'll be a little bit of research, take to Twitter to do a little more research, I guess you could say, and and engage in the idea, take a step back, think about it, word vomit it out, and then if necessary, circle back around and bulk it up with a little bit more research and and refinement um, in that sense.
1: Well, I mean, I I really like this idea of Twitter as the mediator, though, because one of the things I've been reflecting on in my life is uh, when I moved into my current job, I ended up in a really quiet hallway. (laughs) And I had spent the previous like 10 years of, you know, various stages of academic lives in group offices and other spaces where there were always Uh people around. And so like that process of like, can I throw this idea at you or all of that and like being able to recreate that. And I hadn't, you know, and I don't know if I will, but I hadn't thought about turning to Twitter as a potential space for kind of recreating that part of the writing process.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think for, for me, I've, I've always, I love, I'm also like a extrovert turned up to 11. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm and and I have, as, as people have said, I have all the words, um and you know growing up i never you know everybody would always make fun of me because i never stopped talking um and then and so it was always very social my phd was very social um and then uh you know i when i started in my career and we moved i had two small children and we moved to a rural place where i didn't know anyone i was underemployed and i literally had no one to talk to and so in a way, Twitter became, like you said, Twitter became the my outlet for being able to talk to people. And people ask, they're like, how do you tweet so much? And I'm like, yeah, you, t- you know, my husband thanks me for tweeting this much, because if not, I would talk everyone's <laughs> ear off. Like, this is just, you know, this is, this is my extroversion outlet um, to be able to, again, talk through ideas, talk it out like this, this working from home whole working from home thing has been really difficult for exactly that reason is that, um, you know, it we have an office, but it's not quiet. I mean, one of the things that I really like about my job is it is so collaborative and it, inter, interdisciplinary, but I guess inner expertise is mm-hmm. another way to put it too. And so you're always working together on things, right? Like, I'm an instructional designer and I work with a subject matter expert, but we also have a program coordinator and we have people from the media team. And, mm-hmm. um, we also have our colleagues that we can draw from, uh, if we're having challenges or need more information. And we also have, you know, traditional faculty developers, quote unquote. Um, you know, so it, it was very collaborative, you know, we didn't never did anything in, in isolation by ourselves. Um, and so, you know, we're still like that, but it's just, it's a lot different than being able to just get up and knock on someone's door or even lean back in my chair and ask, you know, my, you know, two project coordinators that I work really closely with were in the same sort of office space as me and sort of lean back and be like, okay guys, well, what about this? Or like, what do we need to do for that? Or what do you think about this idea? So, so it's been, it's been strange, uh, working, from home, but we're, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the same time, I don't miss the commute. Um, sure. and
1: <laughs> so one of the things uh, that we've been thinking about, um, and it's something I have taken to calling the before times, but is the kind of material ways we write. And, you know, you're talking about it a little bit with your design work in the office, but when you're doing your other work, your blogs, these types of things, what are the kinds of spaces you like to work in?
2: All right, so this is another ADH thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love cluttered spaces. So, like, I've posted pictures of my desk, and it drives the A-types wild. Um, who like like the really neat desks where there's like nothing on it? I'll, I'll like, I have my laptop on a stand right now, and then I've got Baby Yoda peeking out from behind it, <laughs> and then I have got like my phone stand. I've got like my lip balm and hand sanitizer and back scratcher, my water bottle. Um, I've put my TV up uh, because my second screen is up on books. I've got like 50 post-it notes everywhere with reminders of things to do. I've got, you know, my my thinking beads. I've got, like, it's just... Um, and i I usually have even more stuff if I've, if I've got the desk space of like other little stuffed animals and stickies all over the monitor. Um, I've, I've always worked in the sort of small cramped, cluttered spaces. Um, and I love it. Like I just, it's, it's, um, it's soothing to me. And I, I read recently that that is totally an ADHD thing, um, which is, uh, like, I was like, oh, wow. So <laughs> this is normal. Um, and not everyone, right? My co-host on the uh, the Things ADHD podcast is like the opposite where everything has to be sort of neat and in its place or else it, it's too overwhelming for her. But for me, it's just like, I, I love, it's like listening to the music, like this, the visual noise that I understand other people find really distracting is super soothing to me.
0: I just want to chime in for a second, say, Lee, you, you just described my desk down to a T like including the detail of baby, baby Yoda peeking (laughs) at me. So uh, yeah. Yep. I'm with you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've posted pictures, um, uh, before of it because it's just, especially I, uh, one of my jobs, I worked in an open office space, like a really open office space. And, um, you know, we'd have people coming into the office of faculty visiting or, or, you know, administrators or whatever. And it would be like, okay, clean up your office space. And I'd be like, I straighten up baby Yoda. And they'd be like, and I'd like my piles. That's the other thing I have is piles um I like piles of things like you know I have my pile of papers that have to do with this subject and I have my pile of papers that have to do with that subject and I have my pile of books that I have to do with the, you know um and so I like straighten up my piles right I'd like sort of straighten up the pages and like align the books a little bit and everything and I'd be like all right I cleaned my office space and they'd look at it being like that's not clean I'm like yeah I totally tidied it up what are you talking about it's like <laughs> baby yoda's straight i sort of dusted him off a little bit right like princess leia over there she's fine look i've stood her up and everything
1: excellent so one of the other big things that's been i think really helpful to think through is talking to people and so about the challenges they face in writing so what are the things that you most struggle with in the process of trying to put together your writing your work etc
2: Uh, I, I, I talked about this earlier when I needed to like suck up music, but I'm terrible at editing. I'm -hmm. terrible. Like writing is not a problem. And I get that there are people right now who want to reach through their headphones and strangle me. Um, and, and I, you know, I love writing, right? I love writing. It is, um, something that I've always done. It has always come sort of second nature to me. Um, You know, I've kept journals from the time I could, you know, write comfortably enough and my handwriting is horrible, but I kept journals, Um, you know, as soon as I figured out how to type and found a nice smallish keyboard, I like the Apple stuff because the keyboard's a little bit smaller um, because I have tiny hands. Um, I do, I have really weirdly small hands. Um, But once I've written, editing is just like, I can't, I can't do it. Uh, For my, my own writing. I just, I can't, I cannot get in enough distance. It used to be that I took it super personally and it was like, you'd like, it's probably a bit of rejection sensitive, sensitive dysphoria, which is another ADHD thing. But like, you know, I, I, I would get papers back with like red marks on them and I would just sob, right? Like I would sit there and I was unable to like take feedback on my writing without getting like physically and visibly upset about it. Mm. Um, now I've sort of gone in the complete opposite direction where I'm like, I give it over to an editor and I'm just like, do whatever you want with it, right? Like I, like they will like, okay, well, I'll suggest some changes. And I'm like, and I will accept every single one of them. Like, you don't even have to suggest it. Just make the changes. I don't. Um, because I just, I can't. Like, I, I have a lot of trouble getting distance. And this is a common thing with writers too, uh, I know. But it, it's just, it's really hard. Like, so for me to be able to edit my own work, um, I need like a year, right? Like, <laughs> I need like this huge amount of time to actually be able to like go through and critically look at my work and be like, okay, here's how I can improve it. Um, Because it's not just, you know, when I say I'll just write and then hit publish, it is largely in part because I'm like, it's perfect the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, obviously it's not, but like, I don't know um, that that part of my brain just never got developed. And it might have been, you know, I, I tend to blame that I was a good writer um, and so didn't ever really get a lot of feedback. Um, plus, of course, you never really got a chance to revise your work ever, right? Because that just wasn't how it worked, right? You, you handed right. in an essay or you handed in a paper, you got your grade and that was the end of it, right? So uh, yeah, oh, like I <laughs> tr-
1: Trust me, I totally understand. A, I'm, I both hate editing and I'm a terrible editor, but I'm also a like one-shot writer for the most part. And so I understand a lot of these feelings, um, and like I've had people be like, "Yeah, every time I revise something, I start completely from scratch with just the rough outline. Like, look at the one copy and rewrite the paragraphs." So I was like, "What?" Oh. That was probably the most broken I've ever been when someone told me about their writing process because it just doesn't make sense to me. No, um, <laughs>
2: like, why would you do that?
1: <laughs> I'm I'm sure it's great, but yeah. <laughs> um, and excellent. And so I normally this is the place where we ask what keeps you going but i think we've gotten a really clear sense that like (laughs) writing is just central to who you are and what you do yeah Um, so uh, if you um, i mean if you clearly have more notes about that we're you know go right ahead Um, but it's been really kind of exciting to listen to like your passion for writing come through so vividly throughout this entire interview
2: Well, and I think it's just I I love words um, and I love language and I love you know I was also a voracious reader and so it was like I saw the power that that books could have that words could have Um, and you know I think that one of the things that I've always tried to to think of is that I know that there have been people out there who have written who have made me feel less alone and so I write for myself because I love it, but also I publish it. Um, my motivation to publish and to hit, hit publish or hit send is um, hopefully that it finds somebody so that they feel less alone as well. Um, that the words will find somebody who needs them when at the moment that they do need them and that that somehow helps them Um, is I think, uh, you know, something that I take, I take really seriously, um, but also really uh, joy, joyfully, right, that that hopefully, my writing can help someone the way other people's writing has helped me.
1: That is wonderful. And I think a great note to kind of transition to our, our final part of the podcast. So we'll take another quick break, and then we'll be back with Guy.
0: Welcome back to The Right Notes. I'm Guy McKendry with John Carter and our guest today is Lee Scalarup-Bissett. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It it really has been a pleasure just to kind of share in uh, kind of your passion for music and for writing. Um, Really, I've enjoyed it.
2: And thanks for having me. It's been great to talk about and it. It's actually something I've been, again, having the space to work from home and the expectation that you have your, you're plugged into your earbuds all day anyway, uh, <laughs> has, has made me think a lot about it recently and in, in preparation for this. And also just because of the circumstances. So it's, it's been a lot of fun to talk about these twin passions of mine too.
0: So one of the things we do at the end of every episode is uh, we ask um, if, we share a song of the week, a thing that we're just kind of feeling that's meaningful to us. Um, it could be connected to writing. It could be connected to the world, whatever. Um, so John, what's your song of the week?
1: So it, actually what I was coming up with is very kind of timely based on the conversation. I had last week was a lot of editing work for me. And uh, so Uh, as we've established, I tend to go album-wise. And the album I dove into was Random Access Memories by Daft Punk. Ooh.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, to keep the energy going in the editing. And so I think really the song Lose Yourself to Dance uh, really embodies why I kind of went to that album to just kind of keep me driving through the edits that I was doing. What about you, guys? That song
2: is on one of my playlists, actually. On one of my stuff playlists, Move Yourself to Dance is on there.
1: It's great. (laughs) What about you, Guy? What's your song? Uh,
0: yeah, so I, my song actually also has dance in the title. Um, <laughs> I've brought this up before, but one of the things that happens often in the afternoon in my household is that uh, my one-year-old and I, and sometimes my partner as well, have dance parties to kind of get some of that energy at the end of the day out. And uh, my partner, uh, she threw up the uh, Pride Classics playlist on Spotify uh, since it's Pride. And that playlist, by the way, is amazing. Every song. Um, But Nora just like lost her mind at Dancing Queen by ABBA. And just like was like (laughs) screaming, spinning in circles, stamping her feet and then giggling uncontrollably. And um, things have been pretty rough in in Omaha um, right now, as I mean across the country um, and I just needed that moment of like unfiltered joy to take a break from kind of this total disengagement from the pain and reality uh, of kind of all of the issues of systemic racism that are being voiced by Black Lives Matter. Um, and it's a privilege to have that space. Um, but it's also something kind of a needed.
2: Yeah. How about you, Lee? (laughs) So this is, I actually made, I was inspired two weeks ago. I don't even know. Time has no meaning anymore. I have no idea. (laughs) Before today. Yeah. Like, um, where I was really like, I was, I needed something, again, comforting, and w- I wanted to wallow in, in a bit of nostalgia. Um, so I, I sent out a tweet and a request also on Facebook for, like, if you were going to play, if you were going to make the ultimate playlist of, like, late 80s, early 90s ballads. Ooh but like sappy pop ballads, like what would it be? And I now have a Spotify playlist called, oh, let me, I have to find my mouse now. So I want to get the name right here and I can share it. Um, I've been sharing it on social media. It's called Gen X Nostalgic Treacle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it's it's everything from like Wilson Phillips to Roxette to Natalie Imbruglia, Mr. Big, um brian adams ub40 Sinead o'connor tlc i got more than words in there there it is oh, um, yeah. i was gonna ask yeah. yeah oh yeah yeah that was like the first one everyone went to right that and um to be with you by mr big yeah. and so i've sort of gone i think the earliest one i have is probably time after time by cindy lopper just oh, because yeah. that's like you know mm-hmm. the, the classic uh so i think that's like 84 or 85 it might be a little earlier so I get you know greatest love of all Whitney Houston um you know so it's it's just like it, and of course again it's one of those weird mixes of like the that we've got the power ballads of like every rose has its thorn mm. um and then you end up with boys to men end of the road right <laughs> like nice yeah so, and everything uh, it, bangles we, internal flame <laughs>
0: We'll make sure to uh, include a link to the playlist in the show notes so that our listeners can kind of just bask in the awesomeness yeah. of this collection.
2: It is, how long is it? It is uh, six hours and 21 minutes <laughs> of-
0: wonderful. <laughs>
2: it's like Uh, um yeah play it on random though because of course i'm just like adding songs as i find them so it's like you know you gotta random but also um uh, share the that uh pride uh the the pride one too because like i think i need some of those i need some of those anthems as well right now to to sort of get through this
0: (laughs) um well thank you so much for joining us um our guest This week is Lee Scalera-Bissett, who's a learning design specialist at Georgetown University. Um, Thanks to all our listeners. We uh, are enjoying just kind of being able to talk about writing and take this time with you. If you get the chance, please make sure to like and share and review the podcast. That helps us get kind of more visibility and we look forward to talking with you next week. This is The Right Notes with Guy McKendry and John Carter.